tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 375 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This episode will be entirely devoted to what's going on, the unrest in Colombia at the moment. Director of Columbia Risk Analysis, Sergio Guzman, will be talking to us in segment three about pre, during, and potentially post the unrest, the protest strikes that are taking place across the country. And today, recording this segment on Monday, they are in their 30 day. I would like you to remember that we recorded the final segment with Sergio Guzman on Sunday. So uh, strikes were in through their 12th day. And after we finished, the situation in Cali uh, worsened significantly with people uh, almost turning to, or I would say turning to vigilantism in a well, high rent neighborhood of Cali. They were arming themselves and kind of shooting indiscriminately to dissuade the indigenous Minga from entering the cities. That's the indigenous cooperative that also started to protest. So things in Colombia are very much on a knife edge, tension all round. And we did mention in the final segment as well that we were calling upon President Duque to go to Cali and at least show his face on Sunday night, he went around 11 p.m. and returned to Bogota around 3 a.m. in the morning. So he went down to oversee whatever military actions are going to be taken and then returned to Bogota. So this is also presenting problems because the strikers, the protesters in Cali don't believe that he's really shown his face in the southern city. I'll leave you in the capable hands of Emily Hart in Medellin, where there's also been disturbances and protests, and she'll be doing a special overview as well in her three-minute news segment, and then we'll go back to Sergio Guzman. Please share this podcast episode more than any other so that we can get real news out about what is taking place in Colombia right now. As, as I mentioned Times are incredibly tense. We don't know how this is going to develop. I don't want to aggravate or exaggerate a situation, but it is very bad, is what I can say. So don't tune out. We'll be right back after Emily Hart's news report. Thank you again, Richard McCall. 
I'm Emily Hart, and this is a special report on Colombia's national protests for Colombia Calling for the week of May 10th, 2021. Nearly two weeks into nationwide protest, violence and human rights abuses continue in Colombia. The protests, known as the Paro, started on the 28th of April, and while mostly peaceful, the movement has suffered a violent state response from various security forces. The right to protest has been repeatedly violated and the scale and brutality of the state response has drawn international outrage, while Colombia's government has consistently failed to condemn the systematic violence carried out by its own forces. 47 people have been killed. 550 are still missing. 963 have been arbitrarily detained and there have been 12 counts of sexual violence against women protesting. More than a thousand have been injured, the huge majority of whom are civilians. Almost 100 injured by police bullets, at least 230 assaulted by police. Meanwhile, nearly 30 have suffered serious eye injuries from police use of rubber bullets and tear gas. The violence has been condemned internationally by organisations from the UN to Human Rights Watch, as well as by official representatives from countries including Argentina and the USA. The protests are taking place in the context of a third peak of COVID-19 in the country and an economic crisis caused by the pandemic. Unemployment has nearly doubled since last year, while the government is struggling to balance its books amid increasing national poverty and a glacial vaccine rollout. The movement was sparked by a tax reform bill, an attempt to raise funds for state spending amid the economic shortfall, which would have increased hardship for Colombia's worst off. The bill lowered the threshold at which salaries were taxed, down to about US$680 monthly, as well as raising prices on everyday goods through new VAT applications. The tax reform was withdrawn and the responsible minister resigned, but the protests continue. The reform bill catalyzed the movement, and ongoing demands include the repeal of a new health reform and basic income, but those on the streets have been protesting a broad range of issues, including inequality, state violence, failure to implement the peace process, corruption, aerial fumigation plans and narco-politics. The protests have been mostly peaceful, though property damage has been carried out and confrontations with the police have occurred in various cities. Statues have also been felled in cities across the country, mostly by indigenous groups, often statues of colonizers responsible for massacres and genocides against Colombia's original populations. As demonstrations continue, solidarity protests are taking place across the world, in cities from New York to London. France's Gilets Jaunes movement has also taken to the streets in support of the Paro. 35 of the 47 killed so far in the protests have been killed in the city of Cali, which has been a particular focus of violence since last week, with violent incidents peaking on the night of May 3rd. The indigenous protest happening in Cali as part of the Paro has also been shot at by both police and armed civilians, leaving numerous seriously injured. Videos of police violence continue to emerge, verified by international watchdogs, including what appears to be armed police in plain clothes arriving to attack protesters and live rounds being shot into the protests. There are also reports of censorship. NGOs have shown network data suggesting intentional internet disruptions in Cali amid the protests. This technical form of shutdown is a violation of the right to freedom of expression and information. It protests protesters communicating with one another, as well as with human rights bodies, to report or document state violence. President Ivan Duca has agreed to negotiate with the Paro Committee, after a week of meeting with many of the country's institutions and civil society groups. Discussion tables opened up with student groups, labour unions, regional governments and Colombia's highest justice bodies, as well as various sectors of Congress. The Paro Committee has also accepted negotiations, 
demanding the discussion of themes like excessive use of force by the police and ESMAD riot forces. On the agreed agenda for the meeting is mass vaccination, safe reactivation, non-violence, protection of the most vulnerable and stabilisation of public finances. Though the talks are cause for hope, the government's commitment to meaningful solutions remains in doubt. Various key political figures continue to stigmatise the protests, characterising them as vandalism and criminality. Many prominent politicians, including Defence Minister Diego Molano, continue to insist that the protests are infiltrated by guerrilla groups. Hard-right senators are even calling for a special state of emergency, which would allow President Iwan Duka special centralised powers, restrictions on protests and state control of broadcast media. The meeting, held today, Monday the 10th of May, at noon, will be exploratory and protests will not be called off. The committee has requested the accompaniment of UN representatives for this initial dialogue. This is the third segment of episode 375 of the Columbia Calling podcast. My very special guest this week is Sergio Guzman. Those of you familiar with the podcast or read the international news will know of Sergio because he's widely quoted and has having sort of given advice and analysis on the situation currently uh, currently that we're living here in Colombia. He's the director of Colombia Risk Analysis. And well, that's why we got him on again. I mean, he's been a good friend to the podcast. We got him on to talk about what's, you know, what's really happening. You know, what, why did this happen? What's going on during the strikes, which and we're recording on Sunday. So this is the 12th day of protests. And then we'll talk about sort of post, uh, you know, the dialogue type stage, if, if we can. But Sergio, welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast again. Richard, it's lovely to be here. Thank you again for having me and I, I, I wish all the listeners are having a, a good Tuesday. <laughs> That's very kind of you. I was just checking on the Skype. The last time we talked was nine months ago, uh, and you had a write-up. And in the write-up, you had predicted unrest. So there you go. You guys predicted it. Uh, I think it was with your, with your intern, Cameron. I want to say Wilson. Cameron Wilson. So That's go. correct. But hang on. So you know, I've been out in the strikes. I've actually taken my kids out, you know, obviously early on before anything happens. I would say above 90% all peaceful, you know, really kind of carnival-esque. Uh, we've been out by the Pedagogica. We've been down the Septima. In my son, my, my six-year-old even got one of the Vuvuzuelas and was blowing it. And <laughs> of course, the students loved him. Uh, but you were in Cali. I mean, and Cali has been... I don't want to say sort of ground zero, but it's been, you know, an epicenter of serious unrest. So can you tell us a little bit about your experiences down there? Absolutely. Well, just to, to first to point out, we didn't go to Cali for the strike. We, we, we went to Cali because my fiance and I, uh, she's from Cali, and we were looking for places where to have, you know, a small little discreet ceremony. Uh, but then... When we had sort of the lockdowns, we, we wanted to change our flight um, and Avianca wouldn't let us because they alleged that lockdowns are no, not a reason to, to have a no cost cancellation. Uh, so we uh, went anyways, knowing that we'd be in the apartment with my mother-in-law. Uh, and little did we know, we, we knew there was going to be a strike, right? But little did we know. Um, this strike would go on for days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we would have to, you know, try to stock up on food after the paro happened. 
and then we'd have to you know move our flights because getting to and from the airport was was itself uh, complicated a complicated task. So we just made it back uh, yesterday, um, which is on on Saturday, May eighth, right? So we were there for two weeks from April twenty fourth to May eighth. You have a good relationship with your mother-in-law, I hope. She doesn't listen to this podcast, but yes, <laughs> there you go. That's I fine. do. <laughs> well, two weeks under the same roof, tra- trapped in an apartment. Uh, but uh, and okay, well, you know, first and foremost, congratulations on your engagement, and I hope you found a location for your, you know, discreet um, ceremony. But so, so what, I mean, before we go, you know, into your personal life, <laughs> but. Um, what was the feeling like? What was the ambience like in Cali when you were there? So there was a lot of tension. Um, my mother-in-law lives in a part called Santa Teresita, which is in uh, western Western Cali. But it's less than a block away from one of the protest epicenters, which is La Vía al Mar, mm-hmm. which is the way, the old way to Buenaventura, which was blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were able to witness um from our dinner table from the you know from the windows of our dinner table we were able to see uh the strikes going on we were able to see shootouts happen we were able to see protesters and police clashing we were able to see taxi drivers sort of blocking the road we constantly heard uh, the sound of of helicopters moving above us and 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 of course um tear gas and, and flashbangs uh, were going off in the evening. So, you know, try sleeping uh, with with that sort of sound and with that sort of, you know, ambience um, for a week. Yes. And, and you know, I, I know even we didn't have to, you know, go through hardship. We didn't face the worst of it. We were, we were, we were in the apartment. We were locked down. We were well stocked. I will have to say that. Because my mother-in-law has always, you know, overbought on on, on foods and, and supplied herself well. So we didn't have that concern. But I know other people don't prepare as well mm-hmm. uh, that, that, than she does. So, uh, And that is the well-to-do, mm. right? So there's a lot of people who, who, who are going through economic hardship who don't, don't stock up. Mm. They, they don't, you know, they, they can't afford to put gasoline on their car every week. Um, and, and, and things of that nature. So I don't, I want to clarify, I, I don't represent anybody. I didn't participate in the strikes. I was observing them and analyzing them in real time with the information that I was receiving, mm-hmm. with the sources that I was reaching out to, and, and with, the, with the discipline that an analyst has to yeah. um, sort of remove themselves from the situation and try to understand, you know, where is this all going? No, so I heard from another contact that there were sort of informal blockades as well, where people in in Cali charging, I guess gangs or so on, charging passage. And of course, I've seen on social media, but of course I can't confirm or deny, long lines of people waiting for gasoline at the at the petrol stations and so on. I mean, when you travelled on Saturday to the airport, did you encounter any issues? The lines, yes. Like we saw a couple of lines for for gasoline that were, I would say, maybe two or three kilometers. Wow. Um, 
the the the, the taxi driver said that people could could be uh, in there up to nine hours, and that was only for gasoline. Mm. Cab cabs who run on gas, they were well supplied because there's a gas pipeline that goes straight into Cali, mm. and so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't as problematic for many cab drivers who confirmed that there were these informal blockades, but they were not, you know, in major thoroughfares. Um, the, the ones that were sort of like charging people passageway, they were more like in, in small, poor neighborhoods where people are trying to make the best of, of, of the current situation and taking advantage of the fact that police are not around to because they're occupied elsewhere to 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 undo these these things what what the what the taxi driver also reported again i cannot confirm this was that there was a humanitarian thoroughway that was habilitated by the catholic church um that permitted and and this was negotiated probably like a week after this the strike started that allowed trucks and and cistern trucks to go in the city to restock fuel and to restock supermarkets. So whereas the the, the shortage of, of food supplies took perhaps, you know, two or three days, I think that the situation is is becoming more and more um, regularized as, as we speak. Mm. That I, doesn't mean the strikes have ended, but that means that their their impacts on food food supplies are, are not gonna be as impactful yeah. from now on. No, I'm, I'm curious as well. I mean, so Cali has been the flashpoint, let's say. Um, as of Sunday, uh, President Ivan Duque has yet to make it to Cali. Um, now, it, to me, as an observer, a journalist and so on, this is kind of unusual. Uh, you, you'd think he'd show his face and try and sort of placate a situation or at least, I don't know, just get down there you know to the to the vast uh, masses who maybe are affected but are not involved in the protests you know to just go down and say listen i'm still your president i'm still here i'm still uh i'm still in charge i'm your le- i'm the leader but he hasn't made it down and then today I was out walking my dog and I spoke to a neighbor and she said, well, you know why he hasn't gone down. It's, it's because it's, he's, he's, you know, the security situation is too bad. And I said, well, he'll go with a battalion of soldiers. And, and oh, she was like, yeah, but just one sharpshooter. And I was like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that that would happen. But then I, you know, why would, what would I know about that? And, and who wants uh, President Duque, you know, uh, knocked off or something. But what do you feel? about his, you know, he, the fact he hasn't been to Cali? Well, I think it shows insecurity, uh, first and foremost, because mm-hmm. the majority of the ongoing dialogues, and we'll get to this, the, the majority of the ongoing dialogues he's had are in Bogota, either in the palace, Palacio de Nariño, or other government entities, so home turf. Mm. And I think that in terms of negotiation leverage, he doesn't want to go to Cali because that may be giving in to one of the protests' demands, which is for him to turn out. Mm-hmm. But it's not the first time that he doesn't appear uh, directly to negotiate with protesters. Remember back in 2019, when the Minga, indigenous Minga in Cauca, had organized blockades and they wanted to compel President Duque to go, 
they arranged for an event and Duque didn't go when mm-hmm. they staged this sort of like empty chair with Ivan Duque's name. Uh, and that made social media. So I think I think the president and his advisors are very concerned about potential for embarrassment. Yeah. I wouldn't say issues involving security uh, because there's a military base in the middle of the city. If President Duque wanted, he could fly into that base and have the meeting in the base per se, which would take some convincing with the protesters for them to want to get in the base. But that's another <laughs> issue altogether, yeah. right? But I think I think it's very disappointing that that President Duque has not has not made the journey, and that the the top civilian representatives of the Colombian government, the two of them who have visited, are the Minister of Defense and the Peace Commissioner, who who went on on Friday afternoon. Mm. So. We, we really need some presidential leadership that addresses some of the root causes of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a, I, there's a point there that's, that will ring over and over and over again is the potential for embarrassment. Um, but uh, so let's put this in because you said, you know, the point and so on. Let's put, let's put this all into context for my listeners, those who haven't had, uh, you know, access to or, were, or are stuck behind paywalls uh, for all the international media. Let's, let's go to a pre-strike situation in Colombia. Can you just give us I don't know, an overview of why Colombia may be in this situation it is right now. I think one of the key things that many of your listeners will relate to is Colombia was, after the peace agreement, was making a major transition. And it, the people wanted more government presence in the region. The people wanted, because the peace had been this big blockage for progress, they wanted to fulfill that um, peace dividend. They wanted that to, to be done, and the expectations were very, very high. And so a year after President Duque had, had taken office, these demands started to get much more, these protesters began to get much more weary mm. about President Duque's um, you know, lack of of. of of progress mm-hmm. on some of the major points that that he meant to convey. And those included the, the full implementation of the peace agreement, A. They also included things related to environmental causes, student movements demanding free tuition for different universities, the killings of social leaders, which you well know mm. happened, uh, environmental issues. There was a Hamlet issue called uh, over the um, you know taking off the the shark fins, ah, yeah, right? Shark, fin, shark yeah. finning, <laughs> and people were very upset about shark finning back in the day. And they protested in November 2019 on the tails of the Chilean protests, on the tails of the protests in Ecuador, and right before the protests in in Bolivia. Mm. Uh, And the government's response to that protest in 2019 was absolutely tone deaf, Mm. right? We also experienced um, police violence, not on the first day of the protest, but on the second day of the protest, uh, with the the killing of Dylan Cruz at the hands of police. And that also you know, significantly ignited the the situation. And as a result of that, President Duque said, okay, 
We're going to have a national discussion, a conversación nacional, where we're going to sort these problems out. We're going to, we're going to talk them through with all the different stakeholders. And so that way, the government sort of like put the lid on to the protesters. But then so they, they, they talked and talked and talked for three or four months from December 2019 to uh, around March 2020. And then in March 2020, when they had to present the results of their conversations in a packet to be uh, discussed by the Congress, COVID-19 becomes a thing. And we have lockdowns, we have, you know, economic anxiety due to the closure of business, the subsidies took some time to, to, to be processed, to be put in line, as many of your listeners know. And that generated, you know, a lot of concern about the economic future of people. Poverty rates uh, increased substantially. The unemployment rate peaked at one point at 21 percent. Uh, for reference, the 2020 started with unemployment of around 9%, so it doubled. And that's only speaking about formal unemployment. Uh, 60% of the people uh, in Colombia work in informal conditions. So many of their economic livelihoods were literally at stake because they couldn't go out to the street and make a living. So all of this economic anxiety, on top of the things that I just described to you, were sort of boiling still. Uh, under that lid that the government had put with the national conversation and the the pandemic sort of lockdowns and closures uh, extended that uh, that that sentiment. And so people were beginning to look for a release, for mm. a valve to to let go. And we, we call those, you know, triggers. People were looking for a trigger to to turn out, to protest, to demonstrate their dissatisfaction and their unrest. And the first one of those came on September 2020 when police killed a man named Javier Ordonez mm. uh, and they tased him and they put him in, in a kai and they killed him. Uh, and there was a viral video of him screaming, no more, no more, no more, uh, akin to a George Floyd moment, like what mm -hmm. happened in the United States. And that also in the major cities, but particularly in Bogota, became a flashpoint of, of, you know, dissatisfaction with the government. And there was a number of incidents following that where police killed more people. Uh, and that also sort of was met uh, with a lot of resistance from, from the government and from the president who, in the midst of all of this, decided to wear a police uniform and go out and patrol with members of police, uh, clearly suggesting he was on the side of the police and categorized everybody else who was protesting, who was expressing their dissatisfaction as vandals, mm -hmm. as people who were infiltrated by the ELN. So the picture that I'm drawing, I'm, I'm just trying to have your listeners relate to what's going on and relate to why the events of the last few weeks are connected to that same sentiment. Because after the government did nothing to address many of these things, the Constitutional Court issued a ruling saying two things. First, um, all citizens, regardless of there being a pandemic, have the right to protest. It's an, an unalienable right, mm -hmm. right? 
Two, that the Supreme Court of Justice said the police violence had gotten out of hand and invited the government to review its police practices. These are two legal documents in the Colombian court system. Hmm. So that's the panorama. And before that, uh, President Duque said, well, we, the country, Colombia, in 2021, requires a tax reform. Because it's true, Colombia is not aligned with OECD standards no. for, for taxation. Private sector actors pay the majority of the tax and individuals pay the minority of the tax. And so the government wanted sort of to balance a little bit the number of people who, who pay taxes and also to increase government revenues uh, to pay for the deficit that, that we had. So very logical. Mm -hmm. But before the government introduced the tax reform, a number of things happened. So we didn't know what the text of the tax reform was. And President Uribe's children went to the Palacio de Nariño to discuss the tax reform with the president, a privilege that's not extended to ordinary citizens. So why are these, you know, they, 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 neither their father nor them uh, are elected officials. Uh, so why why are they being extended this privilege? Thereafter, the vice minister of finance began leaking some of the contents of the reform, uh, saying, you know, we're, we are going to tax the basket of basic goods. We are going to tax people who earn over 2.5 million pesos, which for context is under $1,000 per month, right? We are not going to reduce government spending at the moment. We are not going to, to reduce salaries of members of Congress, and we are not going to roll back tax breaks that we issued in the prior, in the previous two tax reforms. And so, go ahead. No, I mean, it's just, it's just, <laughs> you sort of, I want to go back, with the Uribe's getting you know, these, these kids, young men, getting this privy to this information, I can't help think of sort of Jared Kushner in a Trump uh, situation, but of course he was in the office. But I wanted to talk about this, the Gran Conversación Nacional after the November uh, protests. And of course you say it very much. It was strong on rhetoric, uh, I think quite, uh, quite slim on actual fact. Do, is there any way of getting the information of what, what came out in those conversations? The Minister of the Interior has minutes to of what was discussed. Okay. But what's what was discussed is, is irrelevant. What's what what's relevant is did the government actually make policy changes mm. as a result of the conversations? And the answer is is probably not. No. One of the things the government said that they would do to appease the protesters was to sign on and then ratify the Escasu Agreement to protect yep. environmental leaders. Yeah. And we are in 2021, that hasn't happened yet, mm. right? It's stalled in, in Congress and, and members of the ruling party are, are not voting on this, mm. uh, right? So, and this is to speak of the credibility that the government does not have facing a new round of dialogues, which is something that is being proposed of late. And not only that, but if these dialogues go on for a while, uh, well, there's not a lot of time to implement any of the changes um, that the dialogue suggests. Yeah, so, go ahead. He's got 15 months. And so, and, and when are the actual elections? What, what's the date of the elections? So, the congressional election happens on March 13, 
2022. The first round of presidential elections happens on May 29th, 2022. Mm. And the second round of presidential elections happens sometime mid-June. Mm. We'll get to that yeah. later on. <laughs> But that's those are the contours. Okay, cool. And so we were just we were talking about these, these sort of hiccups along the way, uh, and as we said, as you were saying about the taxes, the, uh, the basic foodstuffs were going to get taxed, funeral services yes. were going to get taxed. So, yes. Uh, and then and then our uh, well, ex minister for the treasury, I guess treasury minister, uh, claimed that a, a dozen eggs cost one thousand eight hundred. Pesos, I think it is. Right. And so yeah. that obviously, you know, these are all, these are all building up tensions, um, and and then you know, okay, go on. <laughs> that that I think that that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's mm. back, because that just showed how out of the ordinary the people who are making Colombia's mm. foremost financial decisions are. And look, it's not like. All members of government need to know the price of all basic goods, but if you're going to tax them, mm. I would suggest you at least review them, <laughs> right? Um, and so the, the underlying issue here is the government basically spoke of the critics of the tax reform with so much condescension. Mm. And they were basically saying, because when they actually introduced the document, none of this stuff was in there. None of it was in there. And they said, well, you were, you were, you know, uh, pulling the gun too early on us. Mm. None of this is in there. You're not an economist. You don't understand that the lowest three quintiles of the population are actually going to have a net gain of X or Y or Z percentage. And at this point, it was not about percentages anymore. Mm. It was not about, you know, it was, it was, it was about a government that was absolutely disconnected, a government that was foreign to people's um, struggles and people's current day worries yeah. um, that I that I was describing earlier. And and the day before the protest, a circuit court of Cundinamarca issued a ruling that was a full of typos and B, you know, cited some precedent uh, that said, you know, we're in a pandemic. And I am forbidding the local mayors from issuing protest permit, which contains two falsehoods. The first one, nobody that protests gets a permit because you can't deny people's rights to assembly and free will. That's part of our constitution. And that comes back to the constitutional court ruling that I was mentioning to you earlier. And B, you know, the... the if a protest happens in an open space, it reduces the contagion risk. They're not mm. protesting in an auditorium. They're <laughs> protesting outdoors uh, with, with, with masks, etc. What does arguably exacerbate contagion risk is if people are spread with tear gas. Because they'll have to take their masks off. They will cry. They will, they will, they will release. They will cough. Right? They will have to put water on their face. So arguably, you know, it was it was the, the the tear gas that was putting protesters more at risk for COVID <laughs> contagion than the mere fact that they were going out. And there's been evidence 
you know, they studied the George Floyd protests for, you know, do they create concern and do they create a peak of contagion? And researchers couldn't find a correlation there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, you know, your listeners can can review the information based on its merits, but as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> the government was egging the protesters on mm -hmm. by trying to prevent them from happening. And uh, so this yeah. is what created sort of the momentum for them to go yeah, on. Yeah, the, the, fear, the fear factor of, oh, this is a pandemic, you know, you're obviously going to create a spike. And of course that, and then, uh, yeah, egging them on, that, that, I don't know, I would, that legal method to try and prohibit it was just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, but then, you know, I'm rarely surprised anymore <laughs> by things that happen here. So that was, I mean, you know, that was on the 27th. And then on the 28th, the people hit the streets, the 28th of April. And it, I mean, let's, let's not uh, beat around the bush too much because, I mean, we could go into this for forever. What I've seen you know, is, uh, uh, you know, it's been smoothing out over the last uh, two weeks, obviously. I mean, it's a long period of time to be to be protesting. But what I've largely noticed is it's not a student march. This is a youth march. This is an and from having, you know, interviewed, not interviewed or just chatted to people on the streets. It's they feel they have no future here. There's a total sort of hopelessness i think uh, and, and i don't know i mean can you develop on that from your analyst position oh no i agree look richard people pay money to either go to the university those who can afford it and then it's difficult to find a job a mm -hmm. well remunerated job afterwards mm -hmm. um society's salaries are not what they used to be in that the purchasing power has been reduced significantly because of high inflation rates. Uh, and every time that uh, the, the minimum wage is negotiated, the, the unions and the businessmen fight tooth and nail over percentage point differences that on dollar terms are actually very little money, like $15 a month. That's, that's the big, you know, fight that they haggle over. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's, there's this, you know, like you say, there's this hopelessness for, for many people whose problems have become worsened by the pandemic's effects, mm. right? Many people who have to earn their living informally as taxi drivers, mm. as motorbike drivers, as, you know, helpers in car mechanic shops, as informal fruit vendors, mm. right? Their, their sales have gone down. Their yeah. ability to make ends meet has gone down. According to the National Statistics Agency, the number of Colombians who went down from eating three meals a day to two meals a day has increased by the millions, not, not, uh, you know, not by a couple of hundred thousand. There's millions more Colombians that have cut their daily calorie intake. And that's just, you know, of course, and the government has tried to respond with subsidies, mm. with con unconditional cash transfers, with um, value-added tax uh, reimbursements. And those are good measures. Mm. But what I think people are contending is this is not enough. Mm. Like we are hardly going by. And those calls by the youth 
were heard by other groups. They were heard by the indigenous Minga. They were mm-hmm. heard by Afro-descendants. They were heard by students. They were they were heard by other people who carried some level of discomfort from the 2019 protests who also, you know, joined in the strike. They were joined by workers' unions. They were joined by the taxi drivers. They were joined by the truckers' unions. So you had basically this very diverse group of protesters. And that's one of the issues uh, that determines the longevity of the protest. Mm. You want to know what the other issue that determines the longevity of the protest is? The weather? (laughs) (laughs) No, that wasn't, that wasn't a, that wasn't a a concern. It's the police reaction to the protest. And the police reaction to the protest was very hard and heavy at the start. Virtually very little dialogue, uh, very, very, you know, a start of very aggressive policing that rekindled some of those feelings from the killing of Javier Ordonez. And so that basically sparked the flame that created now. Now it wasn't about all these different groups who had all these different issues to bring to the table. Now it was about the protesters against the police. Yeah. Right. And the government contends that a lot of people and, you know, this is true. A lot of people were doing vandalism. A lot of people were breaking windows, knocking over statues, um, entering uh, businesses and, and, and looting them. Yes, this is true. This is this this is this is this happens in protests in, in the United States. It happens in protests in, in, in different parts of, of the world. Right. But from having those, um, you know, skirmishes with the police and those vandalic acts, the destruction of city property, the destruction of train stations, it's something that has happened in other countries like Peru, like Mm. Chile, like Ecuador, like Bolivia, when people are under duress. Mm. And I'm not justifying those actions. They're, They're completely unjustifiable, but they happened. Yeah. Uh, But that was not the underlying reason why they, they you know they people don't protest to break stuff no it's it's a it's a pity that the the vandalism happens it's it's you know we lament the situation because it takes away from the the strength and the legitimacy of of the protest well the message let's say um but we've seen all this and one thing but i mean we have to address it very quickly the government has been very uh active in saying that this was well i've seen it uh uh, I was premeditated not only by the ELN guerrillas, but also by EPL, but also by narco groups or newly formed groups. And then the next day, did they come out and say that it was actually planned by Venezuela? What, I mean, what proof do we have? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the main things that makes people suspicious is, hey, these protests seem way too organized uh, for them to be just, you know, citizens movement. Um but I, I would I would posit that it's it's this coalition of very diverse and very experienced um, protesters who have identified the choke points. First, the taxi drivers. Mm. Taxi drivers know very well what are the places that are bottlenecks in the city. Like what's what vital arteries in the city need to be blocked in order to stop traffic from actually moving forward. The truck drivers, same as the taxi drivers, but in different parts of the country's 
major highways and roadways. Mm. And these two groups were complaining about very different things. The taxi drivers who didn't march in 2019 because they came to an agreement with the government on regulating or not regulating or outlawing Uber, right? This was their main concern. Well, on Sunday, the government had brought together in Congress a bill to regulate Uber. So they were pretty upset about that. The truck drivers are upset because the fuel charges are increasingly higher because the government's taking uh, winding down fuel subsidies, but also because the regulation of how much they're able to charge in different um, in different from point A to point B has not changed, ma- making them having less money, mm. right? So. And and the toll increases at the start of the year have also made them upset. So they participated in this. And the indigenous movement has previous experience blocking the Pan-American Highway. Mm. Uh, They have essentially in several locations blocked off the entire southwest of Colombia for for weeks on end. Um, But if you ask me, you know, were there illegal terrorist and drug trafficking organizations involved in the protest? Yes, there probably were. They probably were trying to make the best of the situation, trying to take advantage of the fact that the police was dealing with other things to make strategic moves elsewhere, Mm -hmm. right? They were trying to sabotage. They were trying to damage the credibility of the public institutions who who fight them, of the police and and the military. But that's a far cry from them leading the protests. Mm. That's a far cry from them being the principal instigators of of violent events, especially especially when there are already admitted instances of plainclothes police officers infiltrating the protests, plainclothes police officers participating in looting participating in vandalic acts and shooting at different protesters, a narrative which the government denies, but the social media records uh, and the indigenous Minga and other uh, citizen denunciations have made evident that the narrative is not as clean as perhaps the government would like. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, I, I obviously did a piece about that, but what, um, we have to move on. We have to move on. Where do we go from here? What is the dialogue? Um, you know, what, what, what can we expect out of a, a potential dialogue between protesting groups and the government now for the coming months? Well, unfortunately, because the government has tried to keep the conversation in Bogota, keep the conversation between elites, among elites, and leaving some of the representatives of the strikes out, until tomorrow, Monday, or yesterday, for those who are listening, <laughs> uh, that's that's the first day that the government is actually meeting with the representatives of the strike so committee. Thirteen days later, that's correct. Yeah, and so the government, instead of appeasing the situation, instead of de-escalating the situation, has basically held off from meeting with the main uh, with, with the main plaintiffs mm-hmm. uh, for for 13 days, as you mentioned. So it's not a government that has been very interested in quickly addressing concerns, soothing the pain, and showing understanding of, of, of people's concerns. Mm-hmm. So back to the conversation from 2019, there's very little credibility 
on the government that they're actually going to be able to address any of the concerns, any of the big ticket issues. And one of the things that I've written about is, well, this government is already a lame duck and it's it knows it's behind the narrative and it's trying to throw any accusation that will stick to try to discredit the protest movement, to try to discredit the intentions of, of the protest groups. There was an article on the press this weekend with so, citing government sources who were cited as saying we have evidence that these strikes are infiltrated by the ELN and the narco trafficking. Well, I'd be very interested in seeing what the evidence actually is before I take their um, statements on face value. I, I just jump in as well. I did see a, an announcement by the, I guess it's the high commissioner for peace saying that they also were involved in talks with the ELN. And you're like, well, if you're accusing the ELN of infiltrations and organizing this, how at the same time are you juggling uh, you know, a peace talk? I don't know. <laughs> it yeah. seems a bit well, one convenient. Of, one, of, one of the key elements uh, at hand, Richard, is there's, there's no trust. Mm. There's no trust in government. There's no trust in the attorney general's office who issued a, uh, a press release with a doctored photo of some <laughs> yes. infiltrator that they, they, they caught. And it's become, you know, a meme on, on, on social media. They don't trust the office of the ombudsman who's supposed to defend the, the compliance with human rights, uh, who, while the protests were raging on, is accused to have been spending time in his finca in Anapoima, as opposed to you know, verifying or participating in the control unit mm. where, where the decisions are made, the, the, the command center, right, okay. where these decisions are being made. And they're accusing the, the, the defender's office of not even standing up to abuses against their own people who have been threatened, who have been attacked by different um, police elements, when they were doing vigilance of, of the protests. So all of these things suggest there's very little trust, there's very little healing, and there's, very, there's, there's no leadership mm. um, to guide us in, in, into things that are putting us Colombians against each other. And there's sort of no narrative that unites us going forward. So, so this government, lack of trust, lack of authority, lack of leadership, will just continue to sleepwalk through its tenure the last 15 months? I think this government needs to work on very quick wins, short-term agreements, things that it can do, things that it can feasibly transform, but it needs to prove that the things that it wants to do are not things that it already planned to do. They're things that are uh, agreements or concessions or issues that meet the protesters demands or concerns right because in a way the government's saying well our number one priority is vaccination mm. well yes but how does that respond to the protesters needs how does that respond to the protesters demands right oh well our second priority is getting the economy going well that's always been your second priority <laughs> after vaccination how does how do the protests change your agenda? And the government's having a very difficult time sort of, you know, yesterday, uh, again, on Saturday, May 8th, the government met with 40 representatives of youths 
to try to 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 ask them what it was doing. The government said, "Well, we're going to put forward a law of first employment, a law which, by the way, has been discussed since 2018." So, how does that necessarily respond to these concerns mm. that people are bringing to the fray? Mm. And so, the government needs to, you know, if if I were advising President Duque, first I would advise him to stop. Uh, the rhetoric that's incendiary that accuses the protesters of being complicit in terrorism. Mm. Second, to visit Cali, <laughs> to go to the place where events are unfolding, to go to the place and show connectedness, show communication, show understanding. And the third one is to actually listen to the protesters' demands and to establish you know, a roadmap to address some of them and to have quick wins. Sure, the government is not going to fold and give in on the way our economy is handled or, you know, giving universal basic income, meeting one minimum wage per month. These are absolutely unrealistic demands from the strike committee. And if you read, you know, sort of some of those demands, you're going to think, you know, or, or should they ask the government, of, I don't know, Norway or Denmark, these <laughs> kinds of things? Um, we're not that government. We don't have the capacity to pay those expenses. But at the same time, the government has to acknowledge that there's pain, that there's suffering, that there's people who have been killed by members of the police. It can't turn a blind eye and continue calling the police heroes amidst all the issues that we've seen with our own eyes that happen. So as a nation, it feels like we're being collectively gaslit <laughs> or gaslighted. I don't know what how what the correct um, verb tense is, <laughs> but the point is it, it just feels as as we're constantly being gaslighted and and the government is is concerned about some very different thing than than the rest of the people are. I, I, you know, I, th I think we could go on. I think you could go on uh, for for s so much longer on this. And I think one of the feelings is these these totally out there demands is that the strikers feel that they have the momentum. It's with them the protests, and that's. And we must of course also mention and of just say, you know, our heart goes out to not only the you know, families who've lost loved ones and also, you know, not only protesters, but also members of the, you know, state authorities and police. There's anywhere between 25 and 37 people who've lost their lives, I believe, probably the numbers higher. Uh, and, you know, this has been a really, really shaky period, really worrying period in, in a country which is known worrying periods, let's say, you know, it has a justifiably uh, dreadful, <laughs> um, uh, let's say, reputation on a lot of things. And the lack of empathy and the lack of the government's ability to address human rights I think is is something that will continue, uh, well, be long beyond this government. I fear, uh, because it, this government, as you said in that excellent piece in the Global Americans, this government is a lame duck. I mean, what can it? And that point on, you know, focus on quick wins, and we'll have to close very shortly. But the focus on a quick win would be to ensure that the Copa America is held, in, in, and I think that's one of the quick wins he's going for. You know, a football tournament. <laughs> Absolutely, because the, the the Colombian national soccer team is one of the very few things that holds this country together. Mm. It's only it's one of the only times when we're all on the same side, <laughs> rooting for the same team. Like I would argue, 
Hamas is more vital or Hamas's knees are more vital to maintaining national unity than the Minister of Interior. Yeah, I'd say so too. Well, I'm going to have to wind it down now, Sergio. It's been really enlightening to have you talking so openly and methodically and of course so clearly about this issue which has been obviously had us wrapped here in Colombia and has made the international news and there have been Colombians and supporters of Colombia demonstrating in most international capitals or or big cities it is a big deal this isn't going away so let me just say this thank you to Sergio Guzman who is the director of Colombia risk analysis uh, so you know a political risk company do you want to just uh, read out some of your social media and website links? Absolutely. Uh, our social media is at Columbia Risk, both for Instagram, Twitter, and, and Facebook. Uh-huh. Excellent. So you can get the in touch. The other thing I wanted to say is, is so thank you for all, all, all the listeners out there. Um, and I really also appreciate my mother-in-law having <laughs> us for two weeks in Cali. I love you, Nana. Thank you so much for that. Uh, please listen to the podcast. Yes, please do. She'll never, she'll, yeah, you'll always be in her good books now. So thank you again to Sergio Guzman, the uh, director of Columbia Risk Analysis. Do check out the website, do uh, follow him on social media. And of course, if you represent, you know, small business, big business, so on, get in touch because if you're thinking of doing business here in Colombia, there is no one better than to get in touch with and uh, Columbia Risk Analysis. So that's me, Richard McCall, signing off this week for episode 375 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. Thank you to all of you who continue to tune in and, of course, send me messages of support and, of course, questions about what's going on in Columbia or via social media at Columbia Calling, on our email, via the website, and so on. So thank you again, and bye-bye. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.